Have you ever heard a story, real or fiction, about someone going from rags to riches? Anybody know a story like that? How about a story of someone who was a zero who became a hero? Or how about a, a story in, in uh, team sports about a team going from worst to first, or maybe in the opposite direction, right? From first to worst. We all know of stories like these in our world. Stories about what we call a reversal of fortunes. We, we hear of stories all the time and, and witness people and groups of people going from a really good place to a really bad place and vice versa in a moment or even gradually over time. We, we all know of examples of this and God gives us examples of this all throughout His Word as well. In this book, in God's Word, we learn of people going from paradise to misery, right? From victory to defeat. From life to death. We read about powerful kings who are defeated. Prosperous people who lose everything. Godly people who fall. We also read about how lowly people rise up to positions of prominence and how ungodly people are transformed and used by God. This book is filled with these kind of stories, these reversal of, of roles and this reversal of fortunes. We have seen it in the book we've been studying this fall, haven't we? In the book of Esther. In this book, we learn about two lowly Jews who are exiles and outsiders in a pagan Persian land who rise to positions of prominence. We have seen also a wicked and powerful and influential man's life come to an end. We have seen God's people transition from being despised and sentenced to death to being favored and given a chance at life. And in our passage we're going to look at this morning, we are going to really see the writer of Esther, whoever that may be, possibly Mordecai. We're going to really see the writer of Esther highlight this theme of a great reversal in Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Esther 9. Now, we are continuing our series through the book of Esther. We are almost finished. We have this week and next week, and we'll be done. And in this uh, study through this book, I have entitled this sermon series, The Invisible Hand of God. We're talking about the providence of God in this book. And we have been studying about how God is at work in the shadows in this story through people, both good and bad, through the best of circumstances and worst of situations for his purposes and for his glory. Today we're going to be talking about the providence of God through a series of great reversals. In the first half of this chapter, I want you to notice three great reversals. We're going to look at these and, and I'm going to draw out some principles from each one as we move through this section of scripture together. Notice first the reversal of an ungodly decree. That's point number one. The reversal of an ungodly decree. We've talked about this a bit already, but look at it with me in verse one. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, 
on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Underline that, okay? The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. As many of you know who have been in here with us throughout this series, in this book, we have a wicked, villainous character by the name of Haman who is an Agagite. The Agagites were longtime enemies of the Jews. And this feud, it goes deep. It goes way back, all the way back to two brothers, Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis Haman is an Agagite, and in this story, in Esther, he is promoted in Esther 3 to be one of the most powerful men in the Persian Empire under Xerxes himself. And everywhere he went, people showed Haman respect. Everyone, everywhere that is, except for Mordecai. He doesn't bow down. He doesn't show Haman the respect Haman believes he deserves. And when asked why, he says, because he was a Jew. And this makes Haman furious. And so Haman decides, because Mordecai won't show him respect, give him the time of day, he decides not only is he going to have Mordecai put to death, but all of his people with him. He's going to have all the Jews put to death. He persuades the king. He's given the king's signet ring, his stamp of approval. And so Haman sets aside a certain day for non-Jewish people throughout the empire, which was a vast empire, including Jerusalem, to go out and kill the Jews, men, women, and children. Well, we learn that before Haman can kill carry out this wicked decree one night the king has a sleepless night he's not able to sleep so he has them come in and read to him the book of memorable deeds and it's just a book that's filled with everything that has happened since Xerxes has been in power maybe he wants it read so it'll help him drift off to sleep I don't know but he has it read and we're told of all the things that happened over the the 10 years he had been in power over 10 years at this time of all the things read, of things that happened while he was king, it was read to him that Mordecai saved his life. Y'all remember that, right? The end of Esther chapter 2. Mordecai's working at the king's gate. He discovers a plot by the king's eunuchs to assassinate the king. He lets Esther know, who's the queen at the time and also his cousin and adopted daughter, she lets the king know these men are, are, are stopped and they're put to death and it is recorded in the book of memorable deeds that Mordecai did this. But nothing was ever done for Mordecai because the king asked, what do we ever do for that guy? And they said, well, we, we didn't do anything for him. Well, after the king learns about this, Haman is coming in to talk to the king about killing Mordecai early. He has built gallows at his house and he wants to hang Mordecai on those gallows. But before he can get a word out, the king says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? He asked Haman this, and Haman thought to himself, well, who would the king delight to honor more than me? You know, he thought he was talking about him. So he lets his imagination run wild. He says, give him your robe, your horse, and give him a parade. And the king says, that sounds great, Haman. Do that for Mordecai. Crushing, right? So he had to do that for Mordecai. So Haman's plan to kill Mordecai is squashed without the king even knowing it at the time. Shortly after, Esther decides to stand for God's people as well. She reveals who she is before Xerxes and she makes it known 
that Haman has plotted to kill her people, which she's included in that, right? Because she's a Jew, and the king doesn't like that because an attack against the queen is an attack against the king himself. So he has Haman arrested and hanged on his own gallows right outside his home. Crazy story, right? God is at work, though. He's at work in the midst of this. Obviously, Esther is, is given the house of Haman. Mordecai is given the king's signet ring, and Esther gives Mordecai the house of Haman. So notice a great reversal takes place, right? Mordecai takes the place of Haman and becomes one of the most powerful men in the empire. And in Esther 8, we looked at it last week, Esther and Mordecai continue to stand for God's people by trying to undo this wicked edict that the wicked Haman has pushed through that says that the Jews are to be put to death on this certain day by the non-Jews throughout the empire. The king tells Esther there's nothing that can be done to change the edict because in this time, in this day, if an edict was sealed with the king's ring, not even the king could change it. But he does tell Esther this. In Esther chapter 8, verse 8, he says, But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So, though this decree could not be changed, we said last week the king allowed for something else to be decreed that could challenge that which had already been decreed. You with me? And that's what Esther and Mordecai do here. Mordecai comes up with the decree to counter the decree that Haman sealed with the king's ring. It's the exact reversal of the first decree. Haman sent forth the decree saying that non-Jews could kill Jews on a certain day and kill them all throughout the empire, men, women, and children, and plunder their goods. And so Mordecai sends a second decree that says that the Jews have the right to defend themselves on that one day and plunder their enemies goods the exact opposite they have the right to defend themselves and their families and that's what they do and we see this major reversal here in Esther chapter 9 in verses 1 through 5 we learn on this appointed day the first decree that Haman had decreed was carried out the enemies of the Jews throughout the empire they went to war with the Jews and on that same day the second edict is also carried out on that same day we're told the reverse occurred the Jews defended themselves and gained mastery over their enemies, over the ones who hated them. So instead of being killed by their enemies, the Jews defended themselves and won a major victory over their enemies. It's a great reversal. Notice what else happens. Look at verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. So notice here, they're not just seeking out any and every non-Jew. The Jews are not doing that and killing them. They defended themselves and only killed those who came against them and sought them harm. They're, they're, it's self-defense, right? We talked about that last week. We're told, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. They had seen how God had been at work for them throughout the empire, right? Verse 3, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. 
for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So notice we see another reversal here, right? Instead of fighting against the Jews, the officials in the provinces, the leaders and the governors, the royal agents, helped the Jews. Why? Because Mordecai's their boss, right? They got this Jewish guy who's their boss. Of course they're not going to fight against his people. Great reversal, verse 4. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. So again, we're seeing this great reversal of this wicked decree put in place by Haman, by the second decree of Mordecai's. Though Haman is dead, he's still losing to Mordecai, right? Mordecai gets the best of Haman in life and gets the best of him in death all throughout this story. And the application for us is very, very simple in this passage, and it's this. In Esther, two of our main characters are two leaders, Haman and Mordecai. One led well, the other did not. And there were consequences for both. Haman stood against God and his people and he died and so did all of those who followed in his footsteps and carried out his plan. Mordecai stood for God's people and he prospered along with all of those under his leadership. They lived and they were victorious. We are all in one of two camps, aren't we? Every one of us. We're either children of God who live in right relationship with him and are champions for him in the way in which we live or we're enemies of his who are set against him in our sin. Those who belong to God are promised victory and life. Those who are set against him are guaranteed defeat and death. One of two camps. You're either a child of God's or you are his enemy. Some of you may be thinking, well, that's a little harsh. I mean, I wouldn't consider myself his his enemy. I'm just indifferent. Guess what? God calls those people who are indifferent his enemies. That's just another way of being opposed to him. We must be forgiven of our sin and made right with God and brought into his kingdom. And we are told in scripture that the only way for that to happen is through Christ alone. Through trusting in his person and work alone. Are you right with God? Have you been forgiven of your sin? Are you trusting in God's son alone for your salvation? If you're not, I pray today be the day that changes for you. I pray today be the day your allegiance change from yourself to the Savior. That you give your life up and over to the Lord Jesus today and be saved. That's the first great reversal. That takes place in this passage, this reversal of an ungodly decree. Notice the second great reversal, the reversal of an ungodly ruler. Look at verses 6 through 10. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Asapha and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Arasai and Eridai and Vasida. Again, you just have to say them fast and with confidence. Nobody will correct you. They don't know how to say them either, okay? How did I do? I messed up in the first service. I, I revealed my cards. The ten sons of Haman, 
The son of Hemidatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Underline that phrase. We're going to be back to that in just a minute. They laid no hand on the plunder. Remember in Esther 5, after Haman returns home from dining with the king and queen, he's bragging to his friends and family about how great he is. Remember that? We're told in verse 11 of Esther chapter 5, he recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. He talks about how rich he is, how great he is, how he's been honored by the king, he's been promoted to a position greater than and anyone, all the other officials in the land, and, and he mentions the fact that he has a number of sons to continue his legacy. Well, by chapter 9 of Esther, Haman is long gone. His position has been given to his enemy. His people have been defeated. Notice 500 men were killed in Susa alone in one day. And we're going to see here in a minute that 75,000 are killed throughout the empire. And here in verses 7 through 10, we have the final nail hammered into the coffin of Haman. All of his sons are put to death. They were probably following in the footsteps of their father. If not then, soon. And they're wiped out. Haman left a horrible legacy. And he and his sons paid the price. In contrast to that, think about the legacy left by Mordecai. Though he had a rough start in the story, we talked about that. He makes a turn and he ends well. And we said last week, Mordecai ends up making a great impact. God uses him to make a great impact in this pagan world world. And again, there is crystal clear application to be made by us, and it's this. What kind of legacy are you going to leave? I know some of you are here today and you grew up in dysfunctional homes with a parent or parents who didn't love you like they should have. In homes where there was verbal and physical and even sexual abuse and you had a, a parent or, or parents who lived their lives set against God and, and maybe it was the same for their parents and their parents' parents. Maybe you're here this morning and you're continuing down that path to some degree or another. If that's the case, here's my prayer for you. That today be the day that dark cycle in your family and your life comes to an end. And it's broken. I urge you today, if you have not forsake your sin, turn from your sin. Give your life up and over to the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. We learn in Esther that there is hope for the broken. There is hope for fallen people. Mordecai, think about him. He grew up in a home of disobedient Jews. They didn't return to Jerusalem like they were commanded by God through Isaiah to do. And his parents' parents, their parents' parents, they were disobedient. That's why they were in exile. And he started out on the same path, but he made a change. God changed him and used him to make an impact for God's people. And he ends up playing a pivotal role in God's kingdom story. Haman did not. He was raised in an Agagite home set against God, set against his people, and he continues down this path. He does not turn, and he and his sons all pay the price. In this book, we have the story of two men with two different fates. They both had bad beginnings in the story 
but one makes a turn, the other does not. One leaves a lasting, God-honoring legacy, the other does not. And this story has been told again and again and again throughout history. It's being told again today. And the question I want to offer up to you today is what kind of legacy are you going to leave? What path are you on? Haman's path? Are you living a life apart from and opposed to God? Or are you living a life that's sold out for him? Are you on Mordecai's path? Have you made a turn? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Well, notice things continue to get worse for the household of Haman. Look at verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? In other words, if this has happened here, imagine the devastation across the empire. What is your wish, he says to Esther? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. So she wants another day. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So she basically says, let the dead man's dead sons be hung on his gallows outside of his home. Now let's be honest, that's pretty brutal, isn't it? Don't mess with Esther. Goodness. Verse 14. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Now this is a tough passage of scripture, and the reason why is because of Esther's request. I mean, let's be honest, that's pretty harsh, right? And believe it or not, solid, conservative, Bible-believing evangelicals are torn over whether or not Esther does a good or a bad thing here. We're not told one way or another. Some say what Esther did was a bad thing. They argue she should not have added to Mordecai's decree. The decree should have remained the exact opposite of what Haman decreed. And hanging Haman's dead sons on his own gallows, that's just way too much. That's what some say. Others argue what she did was a good thing. It was a, it was a godly thing. They argue that what Esther does here is she is making every effort to fulfill what God commanded King Saul to do. All the way back in 1 Samuel 15 when he told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. It is a fulfillment of what was said all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 19 when God tells his people he wants them to blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. The Jews had failed to do it for, for over a thousand years to fulfill that command and because of that the Amalekites were allowed to remain right and because of that get this you have this wicked character named Haman who comes along and passes a decree to wipe the Jews out God knows what he's doing right he doesn't stutter when he gives a command he doesn't want you to take it and alter it like King Saul does right when he says wipe them out he means it so Esther wants an extra day to rid the empire of their enemies so that another like Haman doesn't rise up and try to repeat what he did in the future. And as far as what is done to his sons, this is interesting. I read 
that this was a practice that was done by Persian royalty. In this day, if there were any conspirators against the royal family in this time and this day in the Persian Empire, the king would order for the conspirators' families to be wiped out, and at times they would display the bodies as a warning for any other would-be plotters. And I bet it was effective, don't you? So here we see the queen of Persia keeping with the practices of Persian royalty. And some believe God may have allowed for that and worked in and through that to warn those in the empire not to mess with my people, the Jewish people. So is Esther in the right or in the wrong? We can talk about it over lunch, okay? You can discuss it later in your small groups. I'm always hesitant to make hard conclusions where the Bible doesn't. It's a very, very good practice, okay? But from from what we have here, I, I lean toward Esther being in the right here. I believe she is obediently putting an end to God's enemies, and God is using this, this Persian practice to strike fear into his enemies, and we know that it did, right? So this is the second great reversal in this passage of Scripture. You have the reversal of an ungodly decree and the reversal of an ungodly ruler. Notice third and finally, you also have the reversal of an ungodly decision. We said a moment ago that the command to wipe out the Amalekites is an old command. Given a thousand years earlier, Through Moses in Deuteronomy, it was given again to King Saul several hundred years later in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel tells King Saul to destroy the Amalekites and leave nothing. Don't take the plunder, leave nothing, destroy everything. King Saul does the opposite, does he not? He doesn't completely destroy the Amalekites and he does take their plunder. He is disobedient to God on both sides, and he pays the price, and so do God's people after, because the Amalekites remain. In chapter 9, I believe we have a reversal of this ungodly decision made by King Saul. Look at verse 15. The Jews are in Susa, gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Underline that. Verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who are in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Underline that. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Now... We're going to talk about this great feast next week, all right? We're going to look at this passage again. We're going to finish out this book and talk about the Feast of Purim. How I want to end today is I want to focus in on verses 15 and 16. Notice what we have here. We have what I believe to be 
a reversal of the foolish decision made by King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. While King Saul did not wipe out God's enemies, but instead he took their plunder, the Jews in the book of Esther killed 75,000 enemies and laid no hands on the plunder. And get this, legally they had the right to do so. That was included in their decree, and some have argued that Mordecai makes a mistake by throwing it in, but I believe he's just doing the exact opposite of what Haman decreed. But we're told three different times in this passage, they laid no hands on the plunder. They did not plunder their enemies, and let me tell you, they could have really prospered had they have. Let's say you have a poor Jewish family who kills a non-Jewish Persian man who comes against them legally, They would have the right to everything in his household, his home, his business, livestock, gold, all of it. They took none of it. Listen, this is so very important for you to get. Just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's ethical and biblical. Amen? We got to remember that. I've seen, I know you've seen as well, God's people go after things they could go after legally, but they should not have ethically and biblically, and they ruin relationships, their Christian witness, and other people's lives in the process. We need to always, as believers, go beyond what is legal to what is ethical and what is biblical. The Jews did, and they made the right decision. So we see another great reversal, don't we, in this passage, the reversal of this ungodly decision made by an ungodly king. We see great reversals happen all throughout this passage of Scripture, and we see great reversals happen all throughout the book of Esther, haven't we? Remember, Mordecai was powerless, And Haman was powerful. But in a reversal, Mordecai became powerful and Haman became powerless. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai and be paraded like a king. But in a reversal, Haman got killed and Mordecai got a parade. Haman built gallows for Mordecai, but in a reversal got hung on his own gallows. Haman wanted to see Mordecai and his people put to death, but instead in a reversal, Haman died and all of his sons along with him. They were all hung on the gallows built for Mordecai. God's people were sentenced to death, but in a reversal, they put their enemies to death. God's people, they went from mourning and fasting to in a great reversal, rejoicing and feasting. This is how God works throughout the story of Esther. And this is God, how God works throughout the Bible. Amen? Throughout redemption history. Think about it. Mankind wanted to become like God, but in a reversal, God became a man. The Son of God lived in riches and glory, but in a reversal came in poverty and humility. We were destined to die for our sin, but in a reversal, our Lord died in our place for our sins. We were without righteousness and with sin, but in a reversal, Jesus took our sins and he gave us his righteousness. Our sin brought us death, but in a reversal, Jesus' death brought us life. Jesus died and was buried, but in a reversal, he rose and defeated death. And lastly, believers, Jesus returned to heaven, but in a reversal, he's coming again to make things right, to reverse the curse all the way around for good, to make us like him. And the question you 
need to ask yourself this morning is this, are you ready to meet him? Because he's coming. Are you ready to meet him? If not, I'm praying for a great reversal in your life today. That today be the day you turn from your sins, you forsake that sin and place your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation so a great reversal can happen in your life so that you can move from being a condemned sinner to a forgiven saint so that you can move from being an enemy of God's to being a child of his. If you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I pray a great reversal would take place in your life today that you would turn from that sin and turn your life up and over to the Lord Jesus. Let me pray first.